new CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. It's Fitz, and if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. I'm a veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage four prostate cancer, so during the initial stages of the COVID-19 outbreak, my doctors advised me to stay at home. But now, a little more than a year later, I'm fully vaccinated and I've rejoined society. But I'm still continuing this podcast when I'm calling the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who I've met throughout my 30 years in this industry. Plus, this year, I'm going to be calling some people and making new friends. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fitz podcast. Let's start this edition of the podcast with a disclaimer. Becky, my wife, and I headed out on a little vacation. So this was recorded on July 2nd, about 10 days ago, roughly, from the time I release it, so that I didn't have to worry about it while on the road. And Curry Sexton was a perfect person to talk to for a podcast such as this, because not only is he a former Kansas State receiver, seventh all-time on career receptions list at the school. He's a former walk-on from Abilene, Kansas, and now he's a attorney in Kansas City and is staying on top of these ever-changing rules that deal with student-athletes and the NCAA. So he really did fit this slot quite nicely. Plus, on top of all that, my relationship with Curry Sexton predates him ever coming to K-State. I've known him since he was in high school, and as you'll find out, my wife, through mutual friends, knew him long before that. Curry Sexton's one of the good guys, and I mean that in every sense of the word. He's probably a pit bull in the courtroom, but overall, he's one of the nicest guys you will ever come across. One hell of a receiver. Now, granted, his life was made a bit easier by sharing the field with Tyler Lockett, but he still made a ton of plays on some really good K-State teams from 2011 to 14. Now let's call Curry Sexton in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, Curry. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's the middle of the night for me, man. This is the middle of the night. Is it really? I I can't trust you, morning people. I really can't. (laughs) You're up to something while the rest of us are still groggy. Unfortunately, I'm not a morning person either, but my, my job my job requires it, so that's what you get for working for the man. You're right. Well, okay, as we just plunge right in, update us on what Curry Sexton is doing nowadays. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm an attorney um, at, a, at a mid-sized law firm in Kansas City. Um, law firm is is named Siegfried Bingham, um, and so I've I've been practicing as an attorney here for for about two and a half years, um, but but have have been with the firm for longer than that. I, I clerked for the firm for two summers during law school and during my final semester of law school. Um, so in total, I've been with the firm for, oh, just over four years. Um, I, I work in the, I work in our litigation department primarily, um, handling, handling all civil and commercial litigation matters um, that range across the board. Um, and, and really, you know, in my short time as an attorney, I, I, I really enjoy it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's challenging, it's stimulating, it's competitive. Um, in a lot of ways, it, it resembles it resembles sport, um, and for that reason, I, it, it's something that I've I've been drawn to and have really enjoyed. That's cool, man. That's cool. Um, and we've got a lot of different topics to get to, but you are kind of venturing into what's going on with NCAA sports right now. This name, image, and likeness thing that went in effect into July, on July one just seems like a wild frontier that even the people for it don't know what it'll completely mean at the end of the day yeah i mean i think you're right it, it is truly at least at this point the wild wild west out there um you know i think it's been slowly developing over the course of, of the last couple of years and i think you know that at first i think the the individual states who were passing who were passing legislation were were doing it in a way to to maybe force the hand of the ncaa well, the NCAA, for a number of reasons, and one being the Alston case that was that was on a, you know on appeal to the or on certiorari to the Supreme Court, um, kind of kind of just put pause on any any sort of NIL legislation from the from the NCAA level, and so because of that, um, what we saw was as as this July one date got closer and closer. More, more and more states started passing legislation so that they wouldn't sort of, you know, fall behind, you know, behind the eight ball in the event that the NCAA didn't make a move. And then with the timing of the Alston decision coming out last week um, and being so close to this important July 1 date, the NCAA probably didn't have, you know, a lot of choice because they they had you know they had waited too long and i guess with that something else i forgot to mention is is the ncaa at the same time was was holding out hope that congress would pass some sort of uniform legislation that would obviously apply across the board but would also provide them with some sort of antitrust exemptions um which Having seen the the Alston decision come out last week, I think we we now know that the the, the chances of an antitrust exemption um, seem seem fairly unlikely, and so we're here now. It's July second. Uh, the NIL world officially started yesterday, and as we've seen on social media, the possibilities are endless, and and, and student athletes are are very quickly taking advantage of the ability to to you know to earn money from their name, image, and likeness. And, you know, I think obviously, I think mo I would say most people can agree that that's a good thing and that it's warranted, but you are right because of the fact that, that legislation varies across the board, that there haven't been, you know, that, that, you know, with any, like with any law, it can be construed differently by different people. So what is legal and what is not? 
that's something that we don't quite know yet. And, and I think we're going to see people test those boundaries. And I imagine there will be some legal challenges in the future. Yeah, it's, it's um, a strange time, but an exciting time for student athletes because these restrictions were silly. And we all kind of knew they were silly, but the NCAA basically took the stance, well, deal with it. They're amateurs. We can do whatever we want. And the NCAA just deserves to lose some of these cases because they've grown so arrogant that they kind of rule the world no matter what they say. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, it's been, you know, they, they have truly monopolized, the, the you know, the, the amateur, so to speak, or the collegiate athletics market. And, and, and for so long, they've managed to go unscathed um, to some degree. And now there's a serious chink in their armor. I think, you know, I think the student athletes finally, you know, finally with the with the NIL, you know, with the NIL changes and then also with the Alston decision, the student athletes are finally in a position where they have some leverage and they have some bargaining power. Um, and, th- and that's something that, um, you know, no matter what your view is on amateurism, I, I think people will quickly see that 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 the, you know, allowing student athletes to earn compensation from name and is not a bad thing, and I and I don't think it used in the beginning, but I think the market's going to sell. So, what product would Curry Sexton been perfect to endorse, or how would you made a how would you have made a buck with name, image, and likeness back when you were playing? That's a good question, um, and you know, I, I think having having been a marketing major, I think I, I would have. You know, I would have, I would have certainly tried to have built a, you know, to to build a brand, um, and I think, you know, part of that would probably be going back to my hometown, um, and and you know, getting in getting in, in touch with some businesses there, just because you you know, there's small town, not very many people have have gone play collegiate sports at a high level. Um, I think there would have been some serious opportunities there. So that would have been that's kind of the obvious one. Um, and that the Manhattan market maybe may have been a little bit more saturated than maybe the Abilene, Kansas market. Um, and then you know just just trying to you know when by doing so trying to build a brand that would bring in other businesses. It's, it's hard for me, you know, have, not having given it a lot of thought to say you know here's what I would have done. But um, I, I think you know starting in Abilene would have been a would have been a good starting point. So what you're trying to say without saying it is home automotive. You would have probably endorsed home. Yeah, I mean home, home automotive would be one for sure. Um, you know, I, I think they they work with Cody Whitehair to this day. Um, but crazy. there would have been some, there would have been some others. Would you have dressed up as President Eisenhower to promote that? Oh, absolutely. If someone would have given me the chance, absolutely. Uh, it is uh, really exciting, but we've already seen you know some pushback with this. And um, did you see the now infamous Shane Porter TikTok from the locker room? And what were your thoughts? You know. I guess I would need to know the motive first. I mean, I understand that, that that Shane Porter has almost a million TikTok followers, which is great. I'm sure we'll we'll lead him into some money at some point, um, if not already. But I guess I would need to know the motive. I mean, if if he had an idea in mind that he's going to post this video to try to make make some money off of it, then then kudos to him. Um, but side, if he's if he was just hey guys. 
first time in the K-State Uni, little photo shoot, let's make a TikTok, lip syncing some Justin Bieber. Um, then uh, I, don't know, I don't know that I can get on board with that <laughs> as much. Um, and that's not to knock Justin Bieber because I know, I know he puts out some good music. But uh, No, it's fine, know, to, can, it's fine to knock Justin Bieber on this podcast. We will support it. All right. Well, it, it, it again, it depends on the motive. Um, you know, I just, it, it, was it a look from a, from an outside perspective? Probably not. I mean, thinking back to what coach Schneider would have done if, yep. if somebody in the locker room had done that, um, you know, the, the repercussions would have been, would have been pretty scary. So I know it's a new world in a lot of ways, but I hope he was doing it. Think this is a way to make some money and not, Hey, this, this is going to be a cool video. As I survey TikTok now as a longtime member, like two months, three months, um, <laughs> I, that question hovers over almost everything on TikTok. Why did you do this? I mean, it is a it's a completely different social media platform than any other, and it's impossible to explain unless you kind of go watch TikToks and understand the weird cultural context of what they're doing because so much of young TikTok – you know, the high school age, it's what they were kind of catering to is exactly that with one exception. Uh, it's better lip synced. Typically Jake Rubley, uh, better be a better quarterback than lip syncer because that was a fail. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was, that was one thing that stood out to me as well. I thought, you know, and, and I guess maybe that's a good thing that, that he didn't know a, a, you know, a 10 year old <laughs> Justin Bieber song, but from a production standpoint, um, you know, the, the video, the, the quality could have been better given that, that one of the key figures didn't know the words and was looking around <laughs> trying, trying to get some help on that. So yeah, you're right. I, I, I sure hope he's better slinging the football than he is singing Justin Bieber. Well, it's a good lesson, uh, for everyone. And it's one I've certainly gone through many times. Once you hit post, did I really want to do that? And that's that's what's so odd about this entire generation and what they're going through. Their entire lives, for the most part, are just going to be intertwined with social media, and the whole world will get to see their mistakes throughout their life. It's it's weird, and I don't think it's healthy mentally. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, and I think that it's a blessing and a curse. I think from a from a marketing perspective, looking at it in the in the context of name, image, and likeness. Social media gives you the the you know gives you the ability to touch every every device across the world in, in a matter of minutes, but at the same time, looking at it from from you know outside this nil perspective, social media gives you the ability to touch every device in a matter of minutes, um, which is which is I agree, which is unhealthy because we have you know mostly this this younger generation, but people across you know every generation. Who are who are looking for this validation and this affirmation? Who every time they post, they're hoping to go viral. You know, they want they want their 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 tweets or their their Instagram posts or their TikToks to get all kinds of likes or views. Um, and so you're right. I, I would agree. I think it it is unhealthy. Um, you know, I think there, there's there's definitely a lot of, of of downside to it, even given even given the upside. But it it, it certainly is a uh, certainly is a different time i wonder if universities could actually hire their own student athletes to do something 
I wonder if that's beyond NCAA rules about paying players, but it seems like a, a guy like Shane Porter, who has almost a million followers, who are almost all, I don't want to totally stereotype everyone, but this would typically probably be true, younger suburban kids that will possibly more than likely go to college. I would think Kansas State having him endorse the university on his platform might be a good thing. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not sure what that, I'm not sure what that looks like. I'm not sure if that's permissible or not. Yeah. I, I know, I know that there, there are restrictions on, there are restrictions on the ability of these student athletes to wear school marks or images or logos um, during, during their promotional activities. So um, that, that may make that piece difficult. Um, I, I do know that, you know, given the Alston decision that, that the, you know, the Supreme court and, and the, the lower courts expressly permitted student athletes to obtain internships, to have to, you know, engage in paid internships and not be violating some sort of NCAA rule. So I guess maybe he could serve as an intern and, and, and go about it that way. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know how it would work from a strictly NIL perspective. And I don't know how the, the NIL rules would, you know, how they, how they interact with the, you know, the, the, the rule changes in light of the Alston decision. It's a, uh, th those, that's a great question. And that's a great example of, of kind of an unknown in a gray area that may be exploited. Well, let, let's turn our attention to that court decision. And that's the one that basically said athletes can be paid and Justice Kavanaugh basically said they should be paid. What's your views on that? Yeah, so I think the the that opinion was a little bit more narrow, um, you know, than maybe maybe some people hoped. But it was it was narrow because it had to be. It couldn't be more broad. I think Justice Kavanaugh's concurring concurring opinion um, was 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 very eye opening. Um, now now his his concurring opinion has no precedential value. But I think it does paint a picture as to as to how the court probably views the NCAA model as it currently stands. And I think he he basically um, he, he basically told this told the NCAA your any future challenges to your to your rules that, that limit the NCAA, that limit student athletes right to earn compensation will, will be seriously questioned now. The actual majority opinion, the 9-0 unanimous decision that was that was authored by Justice Gorsuch, is is more narrow, um, because you know when it when it started at this in the district of, in one of the District of California courts, the student athletes challenged every rule under the sun, every rule that limited compensation. They challenged it. Well, this or that district court entered an injunction that that only granted. The, or the, they don't. They only granted an injunction with respect to education-related benefits. Everything else they struck down. Both parties appealed it to the Ninth Circuit. So the student athletes appealed the rejection of their challenge to to NIL-type compensation, and the NCAA appealed the the the, this, the decision striking down their restrictions on education-related benefits. Ninth Circuit upheld the district court decision, and then the NCAA was the only party to to apply for, for writ to the Supreme Court. So anything that the student athletes were challenging and had not been successful on, that wasn't at issue in the Supreme Court. The only thing that, that the Supreme Court was considering was whether the the 
the the kind of the the injunction related to education related benefits whether that was proper and so at the end of the day the supreme court upheld the lower court's decisions and and just held that that education related benefits cannot be capped um, or, or cannot be restricted to the extent they were being restricted by the NCAA. And so things like, you know, student athletes can now get, can now get in, interns, get, can receive paid internships and not be in violation of NCAA rules. They can get computers paid for. Um, they can get, they can get awards up to an amount, I believe it's 3,800 or 5,900. I can't remember. Um, each year for, for education related awards. So, so that decision was narrow, but I think the implications are much broader. Yeah. I, if I'm the NCAA and someone starts increasing the stipend or payment to players, I'm not sure I'm willing to challenge that. I mean, getting dusted nine Oh in this Supreme court environment is pretty telling. That everyone, whether it's political or legal sides of an argument, which shouldn't be politics at all, but we know there is, you got dusted pretty good, man. You probably should just move on from this topic. And it'll, I'll be fascinated to see how the NCAA emerges from the other side of both of these things, because this is earth shaking for how they've done business in the past. Absolutely. I think it's uh you know, the, their model basically went untouched for 115 years. Um, and so they had they had a stronghold on the, on the market and a stronghold on student athletes. And you're right. I think the fact that it was a 9-0, that it was a unanimous decision in today's political landscape, I think, speaks speaks volumes about about how people perceive the NCAA. Um, and I think, you know, you have it if you're looking at it from if you're looking at the, the, the nine justices, on the political spectrum, I think you know you look at the those who are left leaning, and they look at this from a from a labor law perspective. They look at this as being a, a significant labor law issue. And then, if you're looking at those who are maybe more right leaning on the court, um, they look at this they look at this as just simply going against the American capitalistic model, um, the capitalistic society. And so, I think. Looking at it from two different perspectives allows those judges to come together and say, for reasons that we may or may not agree on, this violates this violates you know basic you know the basic notions of, of the way that our society works. Um, and again, I think you know the the decision itself is 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 you know monumental. I think you look at just Kavanaugh's concurrence, and nobody else signed on to that. But I don't think the fact that nobody else signed on to his concurrence really says a whole lot, because generally, if there's a 9-0 decision, there likely isn't a concurrence because everyone has agreed. But he he made the decision to sort of go outside the bounds of, of the issues on appeal and and issue sort of a, a you know, a, a damning, you know, a, a damning scolding to the NCAA. And I think that that given the given the cohesiveness on, on that court with respect to that all decision, I think it's probably fair to assume that the the other eight justices probably agreed to some extent with Justice Kavanaugh. And so I think you're right. The NCAA is is sort of at a crossroads, um, and and you know I think their model is seriously is seriously you know feeble right now. And if changes aren't made. You know, I think it's fair fair to question um, what the longevity of the NCAA is. 
Hey, it's Fitz. Let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. (laughs) Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn our attention now to something a little more joyous, which is your football career. Um, When you walked on from Abilene, did you ever imagine what happened to you at Kansas State in terms of playing time, success, um, the quality of the team. And, dude, you're seventh on the all-time receiving charts at your alma mater. It's incredible. Yeah, no, I mean, to be, to be frank, I, I, did not, I did not see that that my career playing out that way. Um, did now, did I expect to go and make an impact? Absolutely. I mean, I knew I would go there and I would, I would see the field just because I would work hard and, and, and try to do things the right way. But, you know, I thought that maybe, you know, heavy special teams play and maybe some, you know, getting in the mix at receiver. Um, but no, I, I, I'd be lying to you if I said, I saw myself, you know, getting to the point where, you know, I, I was, getting starts early in my career and then, and then ended, you know, with two pretty strong seasons and one, one very strong season. I, I, yeah, that, that was, that would have all been a pipe dream if if I was sitting here talking to you when I was, you know, a a junior in high school or a senior in high school. But seventh on that list, man, that that's incredible. I mean, do you ever like, I'm in the top 10 of my school's all time chart. That's just incredible. Yeah, you know, I, 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 there's that, there's that Twitter account on Twitter that that I really enjoy, the K State fan that just posts out oh, yeah. stats awesome. and stuff all the time, um, and so I see stuff like that pop up. But I guess just because of where I am, where I am in life, you know, being just just crazy busy with work and and life, and 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 also being now seven years removed from from K State, I guess I never quite that sink in. So when I see things like, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I I'm, I'm seventh all time. And I don't know what the statistic is, but when I see that, I guess I don't necessarily let it sink in to quite understand what that means. But when you, when you really, you know, when you really do analyze it um, and, and soak it in, I think it, it, it's incredible for, for me to sit here today and have accomplished that, especially knowing the caliber of, of wide receiver that has gone through K state, especially in the last, in the last 30 or so years, um, and to be mentioned with you know in, in the same breath as the Tyler Lockett's, the Kevin Lockett's, the Jordy Nelsons, the Michael Smiths, the Andre Coleman's, 
Um, I could go on and on. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and something that I will always, always cherish. Well, it's seventh on the career receptions list at 129. So let's read off who's above you. There's this dude named Tyler Lockett at 249. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was yeah, a short, he, he was a short guy. Done all right for himself. Kevin Lockett, his pops at 217. Jordy Nelson, 206. Michael Smith, 179, and then drops down a little bit, to be honest. Aaron Lockett, 137. Mitch Running, who was Curry Sexton before Curry Sexton was Curry Sexton. That made sense. 133, you 129. So what I take from this, though, is despite all of your accomplishments, you'd be the fourth best Lockett. There's there's a lot of lockets. Yeah. 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 You're not even yeah. the best former walk-on, thanks to that Jordy Nelson guy. I don't even know what ever happened to him. Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll take it, though. I'll take it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, what are some of your best memories about playing football at Kansas State? Man, that's that's a great question. I think, you know, you alluded to this earlier, but the success we had was 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 pretty unbelievable in that in, in our four year period. Um, obviously, I think our, our class, you know, the 2011 to 2014 group, I think, had 39 wins over those four years. So obviously there were some incredible, you know, incredible accomplishments along the way. Um, you know, I guess outside of the, the wins and losses, um, I think the, the locker room that we had was that, I mean, that though the locker room that we had, you know, there are memories in there and friendships that I still have to this day that will, that will always supersede anything that we did on the field or anything that I did on the field. Uh, I think just given the nature of Coach Schneider's program, you know, he, he, he really challenges you. He challenges you, you as young men and, and, and challenges you to, to kind of push yourselves. And because of that, I think you you and your teammates sort of meld together and, and probably become closer than, than maybe other locker rooms. And so I just, you know, the, the, just the camaraderie that we had um, and, and all the shenanigans that went down in the locker room, that's – those are my favorite memories. Those are the memories that will that will last forever. And when when the guys get together, that's the stuff we still talk about. Um, from a from a you know from an achievement perspective, I mean, gosh, it's hard to it's hard to run down the list. But I mean, I think first and foremost has to be winning the Big Twelve in in twenty twelve at, at home. I think just you know that season was an incredible year. Obviously, the the Baylor week was a was a giant hiccup, but you know, winning that big 12 championship at home last game with the old press box standing, um, just the whole setting that night was unbelievable with the fog rolling in over the field and Willie getting up on the press box. I mean, that, that, the, the atmosphere that night was, was unbelievable. Um, so I would say that probably ranks first and foremost. Um, but then, you know, you look at, you look at so many other things. I mean, that whole 2011 season was, was insane. Every game went down to the wire and somehow we managed to come out victorious in, in nearly every game. I mean, you look at the Baylor game versus RG3, that game was insane. Maybe as loud as I, as I have ever heard Bill Snyder um, Family Stadium. The A&M game, the four-overtime game, was was absolutely Crazy. insane. Um, and that was that was a game where I had kind of had my first taste of individual success. Um, so that, that made that game a little bit sweeter. Um, I mean, going down to Miami, I mean, we, you know, the, the era that I grew up in, the generation that I grew up in, the U was, you know, as, as big as it got. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, we played a different Miami university or university of Miami, but, um, 
But to go down to go down there to see the U on the helmet and to beat those guys was was incredible. I mean, it just kind of you know made you think, wow, I'm really I'm really I'm really at this stage. Um, and so, I mean, those are some of the those are some of the games that stick out in my mind. Um, and then, obviously, I think you know the the Auburn game in 2014. I think was was it was the best atmosphere that I have ever played in or that I ever played in. Um, the fans that night were unbelievable. And, and, you know, obviously that's a game that, that we should have won and, and should have won by probably 10 points. But that that atmosphere is something that, that you know, that, that I'll never forget. I mean, that was just that was unbelievable. And so all of the, those are some of the things that, you know, that stick out to me right off the top of my head. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the brotherhood, the relationships that I built, um, th- those are the things that will that will stick with me you know, for, for the rest of my time on this earth. I think your period of playing at Kansas state defines perfectly why I'm so in favor of the expansion of the playoff model, uh, at four teams or back then two, you get left out, but someone went back and reviewed and two, if not three of the teams you played on would have made a 12 team playoff. And that's Amazing to stop and think about because even as someone who observes K-State football as closely as I do, I hadn't made that connection. But how would that redefine – now, I'm not talking about winning and losing any more games. Exactly what happened in your career and ending up in two playoffs, that changes how people view Kansas State football for years to come, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, you look at – the, the 2012 season was obviously one of the, you know, one of the most prominent seasons in, in the in program history. I don't think anybody will discount that. But but the 2011 season was, you know, fairly unique. We got off to a to a red hot start. I think we were seven and zero, and then we suffered a couple losses down the stretch. Um, you know, kind of got got kicked in the teeth by OU, and then and then lost a tight one to Oklahoma State. So you know, you get up undefeated, highly ranked, and then you kind of somewhat scuffled to the finish. And so, so people don't view you in that light of being a, a, an elite football team. Um, and then the same thing would apply to the 2014 season. I mean, you know, we lose the, we lose the, the early game to Auburn and then we get red hot. Um, and then we lose a couple game games down the stretch against TCU and Baylor before we lose that, that bowl game DCLA. So again, you know, although in the last game of the regular season, we were playing for a share of the big 12 title. We lose that game. We end up nine and three, which isn't the sexiest record of all time. Um, and so people look at you as a good team, but not maybe an elite right. team, but all of a sudden you put, you put the 2011, 2012 and 2014 teams in a playoff. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, then, then all of a sudden that era of K state sports is viewed as probably the second most accomplished era in, in K-State football history. And, and, you know, the 2011 team, I don't know if, if how, how well we would have fared in a playoff game because that was a team that just overachieved. Um, but the 2012 and the 2014 teams, I think could have, you know, could have wreaked some havoc in a playoff setting. Um, 2012, certainly, but 2014, you know, you look at a, a team with 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 just simply Jake Waters and Tyler Lockett, and 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 those two give you the ability to to, to hang in there with anybody on a good day. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think just it, thinking about that is crazy. But but 
you know, when this when this 12 team model is implemented, it's going to make me a little frustrated knowing that, that we could have had those opportunities. But, you know, all things considered, I, I, I still wouldn't change a whole lot about how my four years went. Man, 2012, that was a great team. But you talk about the injuries just piling up as the season progressed. And you go to Baylor without Ty Zimmerman and Colin is just a shell of himself at that point because he's so battered. It's kind of what K-State runs into, not quite enough depth as some of the bigger programs that attract the four- and five-star guys. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I, and, and I saw, and I saw you know, Kellis put out an article recently about the 2012 team, and, and Chris Harper had some really interesting quotes in there, and, and Chris is my guy. Um, but but I, I don't know that I necessarily completely agree with the idea that we weren't that we weren't vying to win the national championship. That wasn't a goal of the team, and that that's what did us in at Baylor. I look at it as we 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 hit a we had a rash of of, of key injuries all at once. I mean, you know, Colin Klein gets that gets that head injury, that concussion in the Oklahoma State game, and and didn't practice a whole lot over the course of the next couple of weeks. Lockett gets that. Lockett gets a high ankle sprain. I can't remember if that was at Okie or against Okie State or at TCU, but he's not 100%. Ty breaks his leg at TCU. Huge, huge, huge loss. I mean, probably, probably on that team, probably one of the losses that we could not have afforded. Um, Nick Pitts, our starting left guard, breaks his foot in warmups against TCU. I mean, I, I wasn't a I wasn't a, a key player necessarily on the offense on that team, but I broke my collarbone third play of the game against TCU. Um, just we 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 were hit with a lot of injuries all at once, and so the the week leading up to Baylor, your starting QB is not practicing. Two of your top four receivers aren't practicing or playing, um, and then all of a sudden you're taking out the leader, the quarterback of your defense, and play and, and putting in a, a true freshman um, against a team who had gotten red hot. I mean that that Baylor team, their their record at that point was a little bit misleading. They they struggled out of the gate, but but the time we played them, all cylinders were firing. Um, and so you put in Dante, who we all know became a, a great player in his time at K-State, but you put him in against a high-powered offense in, in place of one of the best safeties to ever play football at K-State. And to me, was that was what ultimately did us in, was just the injuries and then getting matched up against a team who was, who was red hot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, looking back, I, I can't sit here and say we could have or should have won that game. I think truly on that night, we were probably just a little bit outmatched. Um, so it's it's hard for me to, to look back and say things, things should have gone differently. Yeah, you know, people try to compare the Baylor game to what happened with Texas A&M in 98. <clears throat> and I'm like, well, there's, there's this big difference here. K-State was clearly better than A&M in 98. And it just got fluky at the end, and K-State lost on that night. Baylor was just better. They were just better. They played out of their minds. It was a great performance. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, they punched us in the mouth mouth on the first possession, and and they put they put the game, they, they set the tempo how they wanted it. I mean, they wanted it to be a track rate, track meet, and unfortunately, we, we kind of played right into their hands. Um, and I, I, you know, one of one of Chris's comments in that article that Kellis wrote that I completely agree with was that that we come out of halftime. I think we were down 11 and we go up tempo um, 
you know, as if we were down by three or four scores, um, which just was, was not the way we were built and which was not going to, was not going to help us win games. We were a team that was, you know, our, our success was predicated on ball control, you know, wearing people down, keeping your defense fresh and, and not getting in these back and forths with these teams who are built to get in these back and forths and say, whoever makes the first mistake loses. Well, we weren't built that way. And so I think that's something that, that, that I do think, you know, was, was, was problematic and, and probably, um, you know, didn't do us any favors. I, I've got to ask you the, the one handed catch back in 2014 against Texas tech. Give me your memories of that play. Yeah. So that was, uh, man, that was, I, I can remember that pretty vividly. So, you know, goal line situation, um, you know, tight, tight into the goal line there, you know, you're almost, you're almost always going to get a, a zero, zero coverage on the back end, which is just straight up man to man, no, no single high safety over the top. And they're going to be up pressed up tight just because they, there is no room to, to give any, to give any sort of, you know, to give any sort of slack, um, give any sort of separation. And so we, we actually called a timeout before the play. And we had lined up before the timeout. We saw the we saw the look we we thought we were going to get, and so we called this play, which is just you know just a, a generic, just basic rub rub route pick play. Um, and in the huddle, I said, Jake, if he goes over the top of this pick, just throw me back shoulder. It'll be the easiest touchdown we've ever thrown. Um, and so we get out there, you know, we run. Tyler and I run the pick play, and the guy goes over the top. And so I come, I come off the rub thinking Jake's going to throw me back shoulder. I'm going to catch the easiest touchdown I've ever, I've ever caught. And Jake throws it to the back pylon. And so I'm thinking, shit, excuse my language. You're fine. I'm thinking I got to I got to go up and try to draw a PI. I got to just, you know, coach Coleman's thing was make a play on the football. You might catch it. You're probably going to get a PI. You might get both. And so I just went up and tried to make a play on the football and the dude had my left arm, um, you know, he had my left arm kind of locked down. And so I just stuck my right hand out and it stuck. And then I took a pretty hard spill and the ball didn't jar loose. And so I, I kind of went, I kind of went crazy as my celebration will, will will indicate um, just because I, I fully did not expect to come down with that football. Um, and so then obviously I acted like a fool running across the football field, but, um, you know, just an, just an incredible, incredible moment. Um, you know, I think one, it's one thing that I'm remembered for and, and, you know, one of those instances where it's probably better to be lucky than good. Um, but, but truly incredible moment. And that was, you know, it, it was made more special by the fact that the guy who I caught the ball over was probably the the mouthiest dude I ever played against. <laughs> Did not stop talking the entire game. Not after the first touchdown I had, not after, and not even after that touchdown that was directly over the top of him. He 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 did not stop, and so that that made that a little bit more special. Just because I didn't say a whole lot to him that game, and I think my 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 you know my output spoke for itself. I'm just not into that. How much down on the field, how much trash is being talked the entire game? You'd be surprised. I mean, it's uh, a lot. I mean, a lot, especially, especially in the trenches. Um, Those dudes, because they go, they butt heads every single play. um, 
those guys go at it a lot. I mean, like Ryan Mueller, he talked so much smack. I mean, it was, and I don't know how my, my thing was always, I, I'm too tired to talk smack. I, when I'm going back to the huddle, I have to conserve energy so I can get ready for the next play. Well, like guys like Ryan Miller, Mueller were built differently. They, they had enough energy to, to go as hard as they could on each play and still talk smack. Um, and, you know, you heard it all the time. I mean, DBs talked a lot of smack. I mean, there were a lot of receivers that talked smack. Um, Lockett and I weren't, weren't generally those type of guys, but it happens a ton and, and it makes it pretty fun. I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is good natured. Um, some of it crosses a line, but, but, you know, the smack talk is, 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 you know, it's fully accounted for generally on, on game day. Let me ask you about a couple guys that you played with. And of course the first one is Tyler Lockett. One of the best dudes I've ever covered. I mean, just not, I'm not talking player, best people, just an amazing guy, isn't he? Yeah. He's one of those guys that is, is, is he, he's such a good guy that it almost seems like it's like, it can't be real. Like what's he hiding? What's, what's he got, you know, what's, what kind of skeleton does he have in his closet? Because this, this dude is too good of a dude, especially for the kind of player that he is to be just as pure as he is. Um, and, and so, man, just a, I mean, just a fantastic guy, um, comes from an incredible background. I mean, obviously he, you know, he, he, his dad is, we all know Kevin, you know, to be a great person, but his mom was one of the sweetest, is one of the sweetest people that I've ever, I've ever met. Um, and, and the same would, same could be said for his, you know, his, his aunt and then his grandparents who are very, very, you know, strong influences in his life. But man, I mean, if you talk about a guy who, deserves every ounce of success that he's had and probably more. I mean, that's, it's Tyler Lockett. And, and every time something good happens to that guy, it just, it, 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 you know, makes me incredibly happy just because there are a lot of bad dudes out there who catch a lot of breaks and who make a lot of money and do pretty darn well for themselves. But to see a guy like him get, get that success, is just, it's pretty wholesome. I mean, it just, it just goes to show that if you work hard and you do the right things, and you are blessed with some skill um, that, that, that the sky can be the limit in, in some cases. And he's certainly shown that. Well, you had a couple of pretty good quarterbacks too, Colin Klein and Jake Waters, both into the coaching profession, Colin a little bit farther along right now, but I can see both of them being head coaches. Certainly, certainly. Um, I think, they, you know, both very, very intelligent guys, both just kind of, you know, both gym rats. Um, but I think both having played in the Snyder system for Dell Demo, or excuse me, for Dana Demo and Dell Miller, those guys have a, have a vast understanding of a complex offense and, and just offense generally. And I mean, with that, with, you know, defenses and fronts and coverages and everything in between, um, I think so much is put on what was put on a quarterback in a Bill Snyder system that those guys just their, their understanding of the game is just, is, is much, much greater than other quarterbacks, especially in this, in this, you know, running gun era that that we're in right now. Um, And so I think, yeah, I mean, just two guys who, who played in it, played at a high level, very cerebral people, um, and, and, and good people. And I think, you know, just w- because of those things, we'll, we'll be incredibly successful. I mean, we've already seen Colin 
get to a point where he was, you know, he was a offensive coordinator at the age of 30 or younger, which is, which is just unheard of. Um, and, you know, I think at one point Jake was one of the youngest assistant, assistant football coaches in America. And now he's back at Iowa State, um, where he wants to be. And, and I think both, both of them are poised for a ton of success. And I think both of them are going to be names that are going to be, you know, they're going to be on every coaching list when we look up in five or 10 years. And finally, uh, we met back, I think maybe Oh nine, because one of my video guys was helping you do a highlight reel basically. And you brought this dude with you that seemed like a football player. His name was Cody Whitehair. I remember looking at him and thinking, Holy cow, who put this guy together? I've never seen someone that looked so much like an NFL offensive lineman as a high school kid than Cody Whitehair. Yeah. Yeah, truly, truly just, I mean, an incredible build. I mean, I, I, I remember, I remember this, you know, also very vividly. My uncle, um, at that point in time was, was the, I, I believe he was the director of college scouting for the, for the green Bay Packers or director of player personnel, something. And in 2008 or 2009, he came out to the, to the family farm. Um, and, and Cody was always at the farm and, and this was the year. So this would have been June of 08 or 09. I can't remember which one it was, but this was the year that the Packers had just drafted Brian Bulaga in the first round out of Iowa. And, and my uncle took a look at Cody and they started chatting and he, and he said, you know what, you, you look better right now as a junior in high school than Brian Bulaga does as a first round draft pick. Um, and from, from that point on, I, I always knew Cody was special, but growing up in a small town, not having anybody sort of show you that way, you know, you don't ever think like, Hey, this guy's going to play in the NFL. Right. Um, and from that point on, I thought this kid is, is, is more special than I thought. And if he can, you know, keep, you know, keep his academics in order and, and, and work hard and stay healthy, you know, this guy's got a bright future. And then he, you know, his first day, at K- I mean, I remember his, his first summer at K state, he got there a little bit late um, because, it, you know, some, some academic type issues. And, and he got there maybe like start of July and first day there, you know, we're all in peak shape because we'd been working out for a month and he shows up on, on one of the you know worst workout days, worst workout, worst workouts of the year. And coach Dawson put him in my group and coach Dawson just rode his ass the entire time. And Cody stood up to every challenge. You know, he was out of shape, hadn't been a part of things. It was his first collegiate workout. And he, and he answered the bell. I mean, he, he, every single time coach Dawson pushed him and thought he was going to quit. Cody stepped right up and, and finished it. And from that point on, I thought, okay, I knew he, I knew his build was unbelievable, but now I know he has the toughness and the work ethic you know, to match his ability and his skill. Uh, and then the rest is history. I mean, he became one of the best linemen in, in the history of our program um, and, and is now, you know, going into to year six in the NFL, which is just, just crazy to think about. But again, much like Tyler, one of those guys who you just, you just love to see his success. Cody's one of the nicest, most soft-spoken people that I've ever known. Um, never would hurt a, you know, never would hurt a fly. 
although I think he's, you know, probably injured some people on the football field, mm-hmm. um, it just comes from an incredible family. And just, he, he is just a, a good, good, good person. And, and a guy who, you know, you, you, you just, you want him, you want, you want him to have all the success in the world. You want him to make three or four pro bowls and play for 10 or 12 years and then come back and retire on the farm, much like Jordy Nelson did. I remember way back when I was doing uh, covering a recruiting five-star event. I think this one was in Chicago. I'm watching the offensive linemen work. <clears throat> I remember standing there looking at these dudes, and they were all great athletes, good-looking kids, five-star linemen. I mean, these are big-time guys. They're going to every program you can name. And I remember looking at them thinking, none of these guys are, are impressive as Cody Whitehair was at this age, and he was a three-star and that pretty much summed up recruiting evaluations for me. You, you can look at all the film you want, but if you don't see someone in person and see them working, it, it's really not the same. And, and you guys are from Abilene, Kansas, and it just you just didn't yeah. get evaluated the same way. No, it just goes to show that there's some there's some serious flaws in the in the recruiting model, and and one of them is that. that Versus that those, you know, the kids in the DFW Metroplex have versus what we had are just, they aren't even in the same universe. And so you have, I mean, and we had guys at K-State, um, teammates of ours who, who would come as these three-star recruits from Dallas or Houston or somewhere. And, and you know, they, they'd be your scholarship guy and you'd, they'd show up and, and you would just, you would think, well, how in the world did this person get a scholarship offer? but B.J. Finney didn't, or how in the world did this person have OU, Texas, you know, TCU, Okie State, all the big-time programs in the region, and Cody Whitehair had K-State, Colorado State, and maybe Oklahoma State because of a family connection to Oklahoma State. Um, it just goes to show that, that the evaluations, that they can be flawed because more people are seeing these kids in these large in these large largely populated areas. Nobody was seeing Cody Whitehair. Um, I always said that if, if Cody Whitehair lived in Dallas or Houston or some other big metro area, he would have easily been a four or five star recruit. I mean you can't look at the guy, watch him move and, and then, you know, consider his strength um, and not just say, okay, this guy's this guy's other. I mean just looking back, there you know, a, a true evaluation wouldn't have led you to any other conclusion. Well, partner, it's been great catching up. And, um, you know, you're kind of unique for me as a K-State football player because, as I mentioned, we met when you were still in high school. And throughout the process of you playing at Kansas State, we, we too, had mutual friends and family, and we overlapped. I know Becky, my wife, ended up at some of your post-game tailgates and because of the overlaps. So you got a special place in our hearts, and I, I'm really proud to know you. You're a good dude, and uh, I hope I never need your services, but I, I know I appreciate this. It. I hope you don't. I hope you don't either. And actually, I, I, I went to so – you're so Becky's one of Becky's good friends, Darren Brown. Correct. I actually drove – I think Becky was in that bus, that old second and short bus. Yes. Uh, I went to a game at Boulder one year with with Darren and a bunch, that whole crew, and I was probably I don't know ten or twelve years old, and I think Becky was on the bus. So actually, your wife and I go go back much further than that. So yeah, you're right. The connections have always been there, but I really appreciate it. It's it's you know really appreciate the coverage that you guys have always given these state athletes, but it's 
the coverage that you gave to us. Um, you know, it, it, it really, helps. It, you know, it's, it's really beneficial to student athletes to have a, have a good, you know, good outfit covering the football program. Well, that's, that's amazing. Oh, Darren Brown is a fraternity brother of mine, lo- lifelong friend. And because I was working on game days, he and Becky were the, the pair on game days. And it was good to know that I had a guy that looked a lot like Shrek looking out for my wife at road games. That's 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 funny, but but also very true. Yeah, dude, and you're right. I mean, they were they were taking care of the drinking while you were working. You got it. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it very much. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Each one of these is so different. When I record these, and, and they're just literally conversations, I don't hardly ever cut anything out of them. They're a phone call from beginning to end. They all just have this different flow and different feel. In fact, we dove into what was going to be the second half of the podcast, and the second half was supposed to be the first half. But I really don't arrange and plan and write out questions. I just go. And I knew it was going to be good with Curry because he's so knowledgeable on some of these topics I wanted to discuss with him. Plus, his career was a lot of fun. Well, that's it for another edition of The Life of Fitz. I hope you'll join us next week. And remember, men, go get that PSA scored. It might save your life from prostate cancer. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you real soon. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.